Good evening. Welcome into another edition of uh, Meet Me at Mutual. I have to think about what I'm doing here. I'm your host, Daniel Shoft, C70 at Bat at C70 on Twitter. Alan Medlock, not able to join me tonight, but we've got Ben and Tafer from uh, KMOB and KTGR. Brendan, how's the radio thing going for you? you I know it's kind of new for you now. Are you enjoying it? I am. I'm having a blast with it. And Appreciate, by the way, you uh, being with me tonight. I uh, I'm, I'm bummed that there's no Alan because typically he's kind of the buffer, you know, between you and me. Since we don't like each other very much, it, it's usually nice to have him. But I've got a stiff drink here, and so maybe I'll be able to to make it through. But but no, the the radio stuff is going really well. Uh, that is something that I I did at at five ninety the fan twenty seventeen range, and mm-hmm. it's been a while since I've done it. And so now hosting a show with my buddy, Andy Humphrey, who was a college roommate of mine at Mizzou. And so we're having a good time talking Mizzou sports, but also it's going to be pretty Cardinals heavy as well, uh, assuming baseball ever takes place again, Daniel. Well, we're going we're gonna to assume that. We'll get into a little bit of that later on. But I imagine it's difficult for any sports show in St. Louis not to cover the Cardinals uh, when, when they're playing, at least. Yeah, well, I'm I'm excited to be able to to spit some Cardinals takes on uh, on the FM airwaves as well. In addition to just doing it in podcast form, it'll be it'll be good to have a daily another daily outlet anyway to be able to to do that when the season gets going for sure. This is it. Are you going to keep up with them with uh, uh, Schaefer Daily or what you were calling? Yeah, it? yeah, B Shape Daily. I okay. am going to to fire that back up again. I think about. February, even if the lockout doesn't end, I'll probably try to get back at it with a little bit of content coming forward. And I don't exactly know the form that it will take just yet. If I'll do it the way I did last year, if I'll try it to maybe do a Patreon or try something different, but uh, definitely going to continue doing some of that as well, because it's fun. I enjoy it. And hopefully uh, uh, I'll have plenty to talk about with the competitive Cardinals team this year. Well, hopefully so. But like you say, first, we've got to get through this lockout. Um, (laughs) Right. This week, a couple of meetings, which is more than we can say for a lot of weeks, it feels like a little bit of give and take. Any optimism there out of this from what you're seeing? You know, I I feel more optimistic than I think I did this time last week, just from the notion of, okay, both sides have met, and then they met on consecutive days. Uh, I feel like we saw a little bit of give and take in that there were some concessions made by the players where they said, okay, we're going to let go the idea of completely overhauling the six years to free agency concept, and we're going to let go of some of our bigger picture, big ticket items that we were hoping to be able to get. I thought that was a nice move on the part of the players, but then the the owner's side is not really meeting them in the middle with regard to some of the financial terms that they're seeming to be asking for, more bonus pools for some of the pre-arb players that – I think they offered $10 million and reports said that the players would prefer over $100 million for that pool. And so that's obviously uh, quite a delta there to be bridged. And so I'm encouraged by the fact that they're meeting, right? Because all of December, it was like they could have been taking these steps and they weren't. And so now we're in the position we're in because they're kind of playing from playing from behind, having to do some catch up. So I, it's nice to hear that they're consistently meeting. I still think you're going to need quite a few more of those meetings to be able to get a deal done just based on how far apart the sides are. Yeah. I mean, like you said, $10 million versus 105, I think, but at least there are two numbers there. I think that's the biggest thing. Like you were saying, they've agreed on this idea of a pool 
now you're just haggling over the over the numbers and that can be done it's the you know getting to people onto that same concept i think is right. really the hard part yeah i mean there was a, a time where it was like well what do they really want and mm-hmm. and what do, what does the other side want it was kind of not very clear and so at least and i recognize that with a cba there are tons of different elements right it's not just the oh designated hitter you know they're tons of things that could be bargained over and negotiated. And so at least some of the financial elements that I feel like are important to the players are starting to get at least a stable foundation to where, like you said, now it's just talking about numbers. At least there may be, hopefully, fingers crossed, is like a framework for the direction they want to go because you got to have that before you can expect a deal to get done. And so that's kind of step one. And hopefully we we hear in the next coming weeks continued meetings and being able to come to a resolution uh, before uh, kind of that drop dead date. And what do you think that is for spring training? I mean, are are we already to the point where spring training is going to be impacted in some form or fashion, even if the opening day isn't? You know, I'm operating in my world as though that is going to be the case. Just because typically by this time, you know, you'd have booked everything for a spring training trip that you're going to cover and you kind of know the ins and outs of what that's going to look like. Right now, it's kind of a holding pattern. You can't really plan for what it's going to look like if, if in fact, there isn't a spring training on time in, in you know, mid-February. So we're talking about a couple of weeks from now. I feel like if major movement were to happen over the next two weeks and February 9th, 10th, around that range, you end up with some significant movement on a deal, it wouldn't take but maybe five days time or so to get things rolling and teams being able to, to report to spring training and and start on a maybe a modified but an otherwise pretty much regular schedule to where spring training games wouldn't have to be impacted. But yeah, you've got to do that before the official report date. And, and then you wonder, okay, typically guys are there in advance of spring training and they're working out and there's a, a lot of synergy already kind of moving in that direction. Will it take a little bit of extra time in this case to be able to start up? I would say probably yes. Uh, of course, it's been debated for years. Could spring training be shorter? Does it really need to be as long as it is? Probably could be a little shorter, and they may end up finding it out this year that uh, kind of out of necessity, they cut a little bit out of the schedule. I think, though, yeah, it looks like it's going to be impacted unless there's just a, a miracle deal that comes together quicker than we all expect. Spring training, as we know it, uh, and, and as it typically goes, is probably going to be truncated in some form or fashion, I would think. You made a point there about players that are typically, you know, like we say, by this point in time, you know, the warm up should have been, you know, two weeks ago. Um, they're in Florida. They're getting their you know, work in and stuff like that. Have you had a chance to talk to any players and see how they've been able to make other arrangements? Because I know that these guys still have got to be working out and stuff, Because, but are they getting behind because they can't use the facilities they're used to? Yeah, I have not personally, but I do know in in kind of talking to different people and and especially on our radio show doing some different interviews, kind of the way it's gone this offseason for a lot of guys has been to kind of buddy up with, okay, where do you go for your offseason training? Typically, if you're a pitcher or a hitter, kind of who do you train with? I know uh, there's there's several of those operations down in Florida. There's some in St. Louis. There's there's plenty of uh, kind of places to choose from that guys can kind of collaborate and go to. The problem, though, is for some of the players who don't have those those big paychecks already and, and, and that money in the bank, it can be a little bit tricky. I've heard of examples of guys who uh, are in that spot where they want to continue to get better in their career to try to make it, right? They're still in that stage where they haven't gotten that big contract yet. And so it costs maybe ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 for an offseason to be able to train at some of these places. And so they might have some teammates in better situations that are fronting them the money to – be able to do things like that. And and it's kind of what you need to have because otherwise those without the resources kind of fall behind. And I, and I think that's an aspect of it from the player's perspective. And then there's an aspect of it from the team perspective that when you think about the Cardinals in particular, guys over the years that, that congregate down in Jupiter long before the report date in mid-February, uh, those kind of things are happening. They're practicing their infield. They're getting 
used to one another to prepare for the season. I think that's going to be an aspect, too, that could be interesting to see. How much is spring training truncated? And if so, how much does that impact a team like the Cardinals, who pride them, themselves upon uh, their strong defense and their their continued uh, emphasis on that area of the fundamentals? So I'm kind of curious to see how that plays out as well, not only from an individual perspective for what are these players doing to get ready, but from a team angle as well. Yeah, and at least that, I mean that's a really good point. And the Cardinals are at least in the boat of all their starters are basically coming back. I mean, they're not. It's not like it was last year with Nolan Arenado coming into a whole new situation and then having to try to work on that chemistry. They've at least had a you know a season or so under their belt. So there's some timing issues and stuff, but they still have to get to know each other. But then you've got a guy like Stephen Matz who hasn't had a chance to come into the full cardinal experience yet i'm sure he's had text conversations with some of his play his teammates but i imagine there's some other ones that he still hasn't met yet um and that chemistry you know starts to build in february and it won't right now yeah and that's got to be a difficult aspect of it but what i would imagine is going on and i know that john mozalak and company were hard at work in those final days and hours before the lockout began to hopefully be able to set up some of those systems. And when you've got guys like Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, team leaders, veterans, Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, I would imagine the Cardinals players are are doing everything to not only integrate a new guy like Steven Matz, but to be able to be in constant communication as much as they can with one another uh, to make sure they're ready to go come the time of the season, right? They're, they're not able to talk to their, their coaches or any team employees, but to each other, they're, they're kind of able to have those relationships. And so I would imagine that there's a lot of that that was kind of set up beforehand that hopefully, and I'm sure we'll get a chance to, to talk to a lot more players once the lockout does get lifted and ask them about what this time was like. But I would imagine that when we get that chance, we're going to hear about some of the ways that they've been able to stay in communications and stay ready. But you you're, you have a great point, though, about Stephen Matz. Like, that's just a unique sh- scenario for any free agent that's joined a new team and is hoping to be able to to get integrated quickly, it could be happening on the fly from, who knows, March 1st to end of March, and boom, there you go. Like That's the world that we could possibly be living in when it comes to Major League Baseball this season. And it's not <clears throat> completely unheard of for the Cardinals. I mean, I, I think about the fact they signed, what, signed Kyle Loesch like, late in spring training that one year, and that's that kind of same type of thing of trying to get to know this team as you're playing games. and. It seemed to have worked for, for Loge. I don't remember that first year as much, but you know he stuck around for a while, so he obviously liked the place. Um, and I figure there's going to be some others like that, right? I mean, we're talking, and we'll talk probably a little bit more later, the Cardinals are probably don't have their final roster yet, right? They're still trying to add a piece or two, and those pieces won't get added until spring training has pretty much been announced and probably started. That's definitely going to be the case, right? There are so many free agents that did sign kind of right under the deadline in that final 72 hours. That was honestly the most exciting MLB free agency has been in years because you had this, you had this hard deadline of December 2nd or whatever it was where people knew, uh, you you know, there's uncertainty after that date. If you sign now, you know, what's going to happen and you know what you're going to get. If you want to lock that in and, and, find yourself a home to be able to, to start getting to know teammates and start being able to get integrated while there's the opportunity to do so. But for a lot of other guys, they're still out there. And and everybody from big name free agents to kind of guys in that middle class to the, the players that are just hoping to be able to find a 40-man roster spot for the upcoming season. So I feel like once that does happen, that the lockout is lifted, it's going to be the Wild West for about a week or so of teams trying to meet with players and and get deals done. And and the degree to that could depend on how soon it happens. If it happens sometime in early to mid-February, okay, you've still got some time, but I'm sure there's going to be that mad rush to be able to fill out spots. Interesting to see kind of whether that'll play in favor of the teams or of the free agents themselves, what the market exactly is going to look like from the Cardinals perspective I do think there are going to be some additions that they'll have to make but like you said getting Steven Matz ideally for them that kind of shores up what their starting pitching depth is going to look like and then it's just a matter of okay offensively with your starting lineup in the bench what do you have what do you still think you need and where can some of those gaps be filled in by some of the players that are still out there and available that's going to be an exciting thing to look forward to Daniel I 
I wish it were we could say, hey, it's coming soon. We just don't know right now. But definitely when that time does come, it's going to be kind of a unique scenario with the free agency getting rocking and rolling. You know, there are some people that have suggested that it may be like the NBA free agency where, you know, you're not supposed to talk to each other. And then somehow on the first day, everybody's deal gets done. You know, it's, it's quite amazing how that happens. Um, but then I look at, you know, you look at what, what, what was out there this weekend where Jason Isringhausen isn't allowed to go to Adam Wainwright's, you know, charity fundraiser. Yeah. Um, it makes me think that there's not a whole lot of, you know, behind the scenes, you know, gray area work going on that these two sides are really staying pretty far away from each other. Well, and I, I think in that case in particular, because it was something that was advertised so publicly, right? Like Adam tweeted about it and was trying to get, you know, folks to, to come to the charity event and, and any Cardinals fan that was maybe thinking about going and, and would see, oh, Jason Isringhausen would be there too. That's kind of cool. Maybe I can get him uh, to sign an autograph or I could get a picture with him. That would be nice and and that's just helpful for the for the big league impact charity and and it made a lot of sense but given that he's a team employee evidently which i don't even know if i really recognize because i knew that in 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 some way uh he had kind of been let go of his previous duty but it makes sense that a lot of these former players still have ties and still are are employees in in one regard or another for different organizations and so uh with isringhausen yeah to, to not be able to uh to attend a charity event I think you're probably right that for the most part, it does more than likely happen by the book. However, you might have players whose agents are able to, you know, figure some things out, finagle some things. The player says, well, you know, I kind of might like to go to these teams or whatever. Some way or another, Daniel, I would imagine that when it, when the veil gets lifted, you are going to see uh, quite a bit of movement. And and it's it's something that it's hard to manufacture for MLB compared to NBA and other sports when they have that July 1st kind of open deadline and it's open season at that point. It's just kind of hard for baseball for whatever reason. They haven't been able to, to kind of generate that in the same regard in recent years. But this will kind of be, again, another opportunity for it to look somewhat similar to some of the other sports given that you, you had that right before the deadline in early December and now you're going to maybe, whenever it does open back up, have it again. So it is interesting to kind of think about what that market could look like when it happens. But some way or another, I imagine they're going to be able to move pretty quickly. Were you a little bit surprised that there was such a frenzy at the beginning? Because personally, I kind of thought that the ownership would just kind of drag their feet to wait to see what the CBA was going to do. And then they didn't. They went throwing, you know, Max Scherzer gets $40 million a year and and things of that nature. Um, Were they just more afraid of the unknown than of possibly getting a a benefit out of the CBA? You know, I think it was less about the CBA for the guys who signed. I think it was less about the CBA and what, what the new format could look like and more about the select group of teams that had decided, like, it's not going to be every team in baseball feels this way, but clearly there are some teams that want to be competitive. They want to win a World Series next year, and they want to give their team the best chance to do so. And so there's a limited number of elite-level talents out there that you say, hey, we want to make sure we get this guy, and if it's Max Scherzer and we want to jump on a deal right now, okay, we're the Mets and we think that he can really help us, let's do it. And the same thing with the Rangers picking up multiple shortstops in free agency. Like, I just think it was the level of talent of the – now, there were some kind of mid-level guys that signed, but for the most part, it was some big names where you look and say, those teams, I think, just decided we've got to get our guy and feel comfortable going into this period of uncertainty that we've got, even if it's not our roster settled, we've got some of the big – boxes that were blank we've got those checked off now and so when it does resume uh, you know you kind of want to believe as a GM or as a president of baseball operations that you are equipped with the talents and skills and the the ability to be nimble in that kind of situation to be able to get everything you need but I also think you you maybe in the back of your mind a little worried of maybe being left out in the cold if things start moving too quick and you weren't able to get your guy. I think that's kind of why the Cardinals went and said, all right, we know what we're looking for. We're not looking for a Max Scherzer level name to fill our starting rotation. We're not looking to give that kind of dollar commitment, but we're looking for a Steven Matz kind of name. And so here's Steven Matz, let's go get him. And then we don't have to worry about how crazy it does or doesn't get once the lockout gets lifted. So 
there could be some different financial terms and it could change what the size of contracts looks like on the other side of this thing. But I think more than anything, it was the teams that knew they had a need to fill maybe wanted to make sure they were able to do so under uh, regular circumstances, so to speak, instead of wondering on the other side of this thing, how much more difficult might that be to get our guy? Yeah. You wonder if there might be a push to delay, if there's a change in the salary, you know, the luxury tax or something like that, if you can push that off for a year instead of this coming year, because they didn't necessarily know what they were doing, but um, you know, they've got enough money. They can, they can work it out somehow or some way. Um, How has this off season been different for you in the fact that, you're not talking with the front office. I mean, you know, you're, there's been that, you know, pretty public, you know, we're not talking to the media uh, type of stance. And as long as this lockout's going on, has it been a little bit weird for you to not have that kind of back and forth? Honestly, it's been different in that baseball is just, it's not that it's just on the back burner. It's like, it doesn't exist in a lot of ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Because none of us know when the lockout's going to end. It does, you know, that you've got the national reporters that are going to be on top of every bit of minutia of what that looks like and what the negotiations are. But from where I sit, it's kind of just like, it's hard to even think about, you know, roster construction and like talking Cardinals and digging into that because it's not that people don't care. It's that there's just that kind of uncertain period of, we don't really know how soon this is going to be relevant information. So yeah, it's been weird. You know, like you, you mentioned earlier on, normally we would have had the winter warm up by now and that's a huge opportunity to kind of check the pulse of what the team looks like. You know, you've got that, and then next thing is spring training. And so you kind of have uh, that opportunity, though, to, to not only catch up with front office, but players to get a look at them and see how they look, ask them how they feel, hear that tone in their voice, and you don't read into too much of any of that. But but it's good to have that chance to do so. And, and yeah, now it's just going to be kind of like a, a prolonged period of – really not knowing a lot of what's going on with most of the guys. And and then you get to spring training. Again, I, I just feel like it's going to be one of those things where it all gets kind of ratcheted up, the intensity of it, the the progression of how quickly things are going to have to move at that point is all going to go up to a 10 right away. So, yeah, it's different not thinking about baseball yet, but it's like I almost am in a, in a way protecting myself. Don't get too involved in it just yet because we just don't know how long we're going to have to wait for the real thing. There is that. I also wondered, I guess the, what the St. Louis Sabre chapter had their lunch today or supposed to have. I imagine that may have been a, a very hot ticket given that there's nothing else there. So when the uh, build with the third and, and Derek Gould could be there, I'm sure there was a lot of people that were, maybe not normally going to something like that went out and, and uh, approached it though. I haven't heard anything. I guess there was no news from it. Yeah. Nothing that I'm, I'm aware of either. And, and, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's just kind of one of those things where normally in a, in a given off season, that might just be kind of a standard standard fare and you don't really think a whole lot about it, but at this point you go, Oh, that's kind of different. That's, that's maybe not something that you'd expect to, to see given the, the way everything's going right now. But yeah, it's just kind of it's just kind of been that way since since the beginning of December. Just waiting to see kind of the way things will develop. So when this does eventually clear up, because I, I do feel like it will clear up, we know that the Cardinals, like I said, they got Stephen Matz. They've covered their major base. Assuming they have to add a, a designated hitter, and whether that's in or outside of the. Um, organization yeah there uh, you go know. assuming again man i don't yeah, know <laughs> and it may not. i mean i could I, I still have this mental idea that the the two sides are going to wind up you know fighting over everything else and then kind of forget about kind of forget yeah yeah that's my hope at least um <laughs> uh, you know, you're such well. a you're such a purist i, I love it i know I somebody's it. got to be so yeah, yeah. um but any anyway when it all does clear what do you think the Cardinals do? Do they have a, a lot of moves? Do they have just a couple of tinkering moves to do before they you know, get really set for the season? I think the Cardinals won't probably have a ton to do, which may not make people super happy. I think they're pretty much set as far as their starting lineup is concerned. We know the names in the outfield. We know across the infield who the guys are going to be. Uh, I do believe that includes Paul DeYoung and, and Edmundo Sosa kind of figuring out what shortstop looks like. I don't think that they're going to be in the market for 
any of the free agent shortstops that remain, some of the big guys that are still out there. I don't think they're going to be allocating the resources toward that. It would surprise me. It's always possible, but it would surprise me. And then so you kind of look at what you said. Okay, the DH and filling out what the bench looks like. But when you think about the bench, last year it felt like, man, that's really a a spot that they could have done more with and could have been a little stronger at. It was kind of brushed to the side, it felt like, and and wasn't something they prioritized with any big moves. But then you kind of think about some of the guys that we saw toward the latter end of the season, guys like Lars Newtbar, and then maybe even Juan Yepes, who could be in that mixture for the 2022 season, you might have in-house the guys for that bench that you want because not only would you be able to have them and trust them and see what they look like in a reserve role, but these are young guys for the most part. And so if they're able to elevate their game, maybe beyond even what the expectation is, maybe you've got a starter on your hands as well down the line and you just don't know it yet. And so that, to me, strikes me as the way the Cardinals might be viewing this thing. They could sign a bat like it's possible, especially with the DH, which I do expect that you'll have the universal DH, not to upset you or anything. But I I think that is the way this thing has been trending for a while now. And so could the Cardinals sign a guy that they don't necessarily have a spot for in their lineup? Like off the top of my head, like I've heard people kind of stump for Kyle Schwarber. Okay, if you sign somebody like that, does it matter that you have a full outfield? Well, not really if you've got the DH to play with as well. But I also think maybe they might like Juan Yepes for a DH role, or maybe they like, might like Nolan Gorman for a DH role, right? Like you're not going to play him at third. Doesn't seem like you're going to put him at second in lieu of uh, or in place of a, a gold glover now in Tommy Edmonds. So there's there's got to be a way maybe to get his bat into the lineup. And in the past, John Moselock's style has not been to – block some of the internal candidates that he feels like are going to have a role in the future, a significant one. And still for Nolan Gorman, that should be the expectation. So I don't know if it's quite timed up correctly for him to be able to take on that set of responsibilities for 2022. But if it is, and the DH is here, maybe they just kind of see how things go in whatever length of a spring training you have. And maybe they go from there and maybe he makes a team if it goes really well and they have enough time to evaluate him. So All that kind of goes into play when you think about what the moves could look like from an offensive standpoint. And then on the pitching side, I feel like it's mostly just going to be relief help. And in my book, I I would say the less you spend, the better. Like just get a quantity of arms, get the, you know, like get the TJ McFarlane types, get the Luis Garcia types that instead of getting them in in June or July, just get them in February or March or whenever it comes around and, and try it from that perspective. Because clearly the Cardinals have been able to kind of put their finger on and evaluate the kind of talent that can can make a difference in a bullpen role. And I almost feel like that's the way to do it right now. Quantity over quality. You you might think you have a guy that's going to be a great middle reliever or a great setup man, but you got to pay him $8 million a year over two or three years. Those deals haven't worked out for the Cardinals, nor have they worked out for very many teams across Major League Baseball over the years, right? Like the Rockies, they tried that one year with like three or four different guys. And now you look where the Rockies are. So I just don't think that you have to necessarily end up spending big on relief pitching. But if you get a handful of guys who Cardinals fans on Twitter are saying, who? That's perfect. Like that's exactly maybe what you want to do. Just make sure you get some more bodies in there and then you can assess and look at how they they perform in, in spring or whatever and kind of go from there. So it's not the most exciting thing, but I feel like the Cardinals are in a position to where they're pretty satisfied with what they've got, and they're going to be looking to fill in with complimentary pieces uh, once they get the chance to do so. I think it was, it may have been in 19 with the last actual blogger day, uh, but John Mosellock asked, you know, if we should actually trust him to spend on a reliever because of his track record. And I think that's a, a very solid point like you said they've had a lot more success getting you know scrap heap guys and turning them into something versus paying for either a name or somebody that they think could be that kind of guy yeah um it's, it's just not worked out and not to and not even to like denigrate a guy like andrew miller who i think was great for the clubhouse he was great great for the team a great team leader you look at the performance of his like i'm just talking pure baseball statistics right. he didn't really do a whole lot he didn't probably live up to that contract and so uh, again even the ones that you don't maybe feel so terribly about you look back and go eh, was there a better way to to spend that money maybe so and so if you like if you're not spending it on relief i'm not saying don't spend it at all i think the cardinals should still feel as though they have a little bit of money to throw around 
throw it into one of those bats. You don't have to worry about where you're going to put him. Can he hit? Can he get on base? Is he somebody that that can serve as some really good depth for your lineup or as a really great option off your bench? I think that's kind of the direction. If you got to throw ten to twelve million dollars around, maybe you throw it in that direction instead of relief, and you kind of uh, to uh, to to use an old phrase, uh, look for that low hanging fruit as far as the the relief market is concerned. Yeah, and. Uh... I think the one thing we haven't, there's not been a lot to talk about because we just don't know yet, um, is this idea of how is Ollie Marmol going to use a bullpen? Is he going to, you know, you talked about Andrew Miller and the Cardinals always wanted an Andrew Miller type, but by the time they could get the actual Andrew Miller, he was not an Andrew Miller type anymore. Um, but if they could get guys that can pitch in the fifth or pitch in the seventh or whatever, do you think that's the kind of approach that Marmol is going to bring to this a little bit less then I don't think Schilt was quite as rigid with his roles as like Matheny was, but he still had a pretty, pretty set order. Is Mormol going to be a little bit more break it open? He did have a pretty set order, I would say. And it's interesting you bring this up, Daniel. I kind of forgot. That's right. The Cardinals have a new manager, don't they? What do you know? <laughs> How about that? So uh, I think the answer is yes. Like that's kind of the way I'm leaning with, again, without having seen it, without having gotten to even really talk to Ali Marmol in the off season. We just don't have, have uh, that platform just yet to be able to see what it looks like and what moves he's going to make. We, we haven't really, we haven't really heard him make a whole lot of public comments. Right. And so right. Uh, without any of that, my lean is yes, because if the answer was no, I almost wonder why the Cardinals made the move in the first place. Mm-hmm. I feel like for as much as Mike Schilt did a great job and won a lot of games, it tells me that the Cardinals were were deciding to make this move when they did. It's almost kind of a situation of they're looking for something different. On some level, they've got to be. And so I think the bullpen usage could be one in the lineup situation and, and talking about matchups and platoons and taking advantage of the analytics in that way could be another. How crazy is it going to get on a scale of you know Rays or Dodgers to Mike Schilt? What he did, I don't exactly know. Probably somewhere in the middle. But how fascinating would it be, though, to to find out that you know six months from now we're looking back toward the end of an Ali Marmol season in in August or September, and we're saying, "Wow, turns out this guy is 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 turning the Cardinals into what the Rays and Dodgers have been." Like, I don't know if I would predict that, but it would be really interesting if if it were to go that far. I think Ali Marmol is very bright. I think he's if anybody could do it, he's the the guy that could be able to kind of blend that those elements to say, hey, here's what we're looking to do. I know that this is what the front office wants us to do, but I'm going to be able to be personable with you and, and explain to you why it looks that way. Because I think that's a concern for a lot of people that if you don't have the right manager to be able to implement the kind of system that the, the Rays and Dodgers have been able to use, uh, it's not going to sit well maybe with a lot of players if they don't if they don't have. Uh, a feeling like their autonomy or they're on board with what you're wanting to go with. And so I feel like maybe Ali Marmol could be that guy for the Cardinals. It's so darn fascinating, and I can't wait to kind of see what it looks like. It's a shame that we've just not been able to really focus on it very much because it legitimately could be like there's a there's a realm in which we're talking about this team like that come August or September, like, wow, isn't it crazy how much the Cardinals have, have revolutionized? Not saying it's going to happen, but it certainly could. It's a possibility. With the caveat that winning solves everything, if Marmol did do a lot of that, how would that, in this fan base that still has a lot of, you know, whitey ball adherent types. That, that, it, that it does. How would that be accepted? Do you think? Uh, it won't be. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> by the by, I, I already feel like I can see the Facebook comments on oh, on the, on the nights where something goes wrong, you know. And that's gonna be there. You know what? Cardinals fans are so passionate. That's gonna be there no matter what. Mm-hmm. And and I, I feel like it's not just the folks who are much older than me that feel that way. I feel like there are plenty of people, even even in the younger generation, that might might have that kind of old school style of baseball ingrained from them generation to generation. So I feel like it, on the nights it doesn't go well, it's going to be a hard sell. But again, I feel like Ali Marmol is the guy that that is going to be confident in himself and in the process of what they're doing. 
And so when it doesn't go well, I feel like you'll be able to explain, here's what we were looking at. Here's the way we do things. And you know what? It didn't pan out this time. I, I think you look, you know, it just kind of depends where you look, right? And social media is not indicative of a full fan base. And a lot of times that can be difficult to remember because we spend so much time on Twitter and we're looking at Facebook and we're we're kind of seeing the the, the world of sports through those lenses. But in reality, there's a lot of people out there with differing views in the fan base of of what's good and what's bad and what they ought to do and what they should should get rid of and not do. I think at the end of the day, that's true no matter who the manager is. But in this case in particular, yeah, if they do decide to go in a more revolutionary direction, I will be fascinated to see uh, some of the screenshots that come up from that <laughs> on, on a night where they, they blow a lead and, and uh, what's this Marmol do and what, is, what does he know? I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that. And I'm sure Ollie knows it too, right? Like he's, he's perceptive. He knows, what, he knows what the deal is. Yeah, I mean, he's got a Twitter account, but I don't think he's used it in four or five years. So he's he's smartened up, um, and but yeah, I think it it's going to be interesting. It, and I agree, especially I try not to read the Facebook comments, um, and I think that's just I see him on Twitter, man. Like people post post. You've got people who are on both, and so I'm looking <laughs> through my feed, and I'll go, oh, yep, that was on Facebook. Rarely will I, you know, because I rarely am I on Facebook, but when I do, and I'm in some of those Cardinals groups and different things, and so I'll see some of the comments, and sometimes I just can't help myself, and I'll put a little comment like, well, actually. There is no C in Schilt or whatever it is that I whatever it is that I chime in with. Uh, I, I sometimes can't help myself, but uh, you know it, it, it's going to happen regardless, and, and it'll be fun to kind of see uh, what what life that takes on in the twenty twenty two season with a new manager. Yeah, it, it should be should be interesting. Let's look a little bit about on the on some of the things on the field, and of course, I think the biggest question that we've got right now is Paul DeYoung, right? I mean. What we've seen him struggle over the last couple of years, there are reasons for that to some degree, but how much do the, how much is it reasons? How much are the excuses? That kind of thing. What do you see out of Paul DeYoung for 2022? That is such a tricky question. And I do think it's that's at the center. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're on the ball with this one. I mean, that's at the center of, I think, what a lot of the conversation about the Cardinals would be if it weren't just, uh, when's the lockout going to be over? Because, when you look at the offense last year, I, I do believe as a whole, they there are areas for them to have improved and to be, to have been more consistent. And nowhere is that more true than with Paul DeYoung, who we have seen over the course of time has got it in him. He's got that ability to where you look at his home run totals in every year that wasn't the uh, the truncated COVID season in 2020. I mean, the guy's gone 25, 19, 30, and then 19 again last year. So like, Nothing stands out there as having been a significant issue, right? It's over in the mm-hmm. other columns. When you talk about the batting average and, and the consistency with which he's able to, to strike the baseball, I mean, 197 is not going to cut it. That's a, a career low mark for him, as was the on-base percentage. And so it's just kind of a question of the the raw ability that we know and we've seen within this guy before. Is he able to make the adjustments that the league has clearly made to him over the last four or five seasons to be able to be this kind of caliber of starting shortstop, because I think he's always going to be a plus guy defensively. He might not be a gold glover ever, but a guy who I would consider to be above average when his head's in it and when he's, when he's in the right place with, with his defense. But sometimes it's difficult not to have the, the, the poorness with the bat follow you out into the field. And for him last year, it was just like, when pitchers would make a mistake, it would be he'd punish it. He's still got that ability. He's a world class athlete, and that's why he ran into 19 home runs last year. But it was always kind of like every time you hit one, you go, "Well, well yeah." I mean, you look at where that pitch was. Like that's what Paul <laughs> the that's what Paul DeYoung can do. But major league pitchers are going to make fewer and fewer of those mistakes against you each year as they start to figure out what it kind of looks like for you uh, when when you don't make that mistake. And for Paul DeYoung. It's just been, you know, he's taken some poor at-bats. He's struck out more than you'd like to see, which is true of everybody in baseball nowadays. But for DeYoung, it hasn't been counteracted uh, with, with you know, the way you think about launch angle and the way you think it, it hasn't been counteracted with the total power production that you'd like to see. You know, even last year when he when he hit the, the 19 home runs, the 390 slug, it's just like the, the trade-off isn't really there. And so 
ideally for Young, the the offseason training that he's doing and working with a new hitting coach is going to be something that pays off for him. And I think he's going to have the opportunity to be kind of the guy. I think the Cardinals really like Edmundo Sosa, but they probably know that offensively Edmundo Sosa does not have Paul DeYoung's ceiling. Like you, you pair those guys next to one another, and DeYoung is the guy that if you're talking about total upside, I think DeYoung's got it. I think Edmundo Sosa could play a lot, and that would be okay. I, I think I think he's good enough to be a guy that gets a lot of at-bats and gets a lot of time in the field. He's so gosh darn good defensively, and probably, for me, of all the gold lovers the Cardinals racked up this year, Edmundo Sosa maybe is among the most fun to watch play defense, just what he can do at shortstop. A couple of times last year, you just marvel, and and I, I'd, I'd find myself 25 minutes later still like thinking about elements of a play that he made, and so there is that aspect to this, but offensively, I think is where the Cardinals really do have to find those steps forward. And you look around the diamond, right? Like there aren't a lot of places to make any upgrades. And so I feel like shortstop is the one where you say, yep, DeYoung didn't have the kind of season that you want. You look in the outfield, O'Neill did. Dylan Carlson is going to be there. Bader doing what he did defensively. I think he did enough offensively. Okay, cross that off your list. Yachty, Goldie. Arenado, and then maybe second base Tommy Edmond, though, uh, you know, could, could be another area. But that's kind of what you're looking, right, up the middle. And so I think it's a natural place to look for an upgrade offensively. But the Cardinals, it just feels like they're going to give DeYoung that last chance uh, because he is under contract. And unless they can pull off a trade where they're not, like, getting rid of him for nothing, but they're really feeling like they could trade him and get something to help them win this year. I don't think they're going to look in that direction either, unless it just kind of falls into their lap. So I think it's going to be more of the same from the shortstop position. Do I think DeYoung can do better? Yeah, I guess I do, but I've said that every year. Like I've gone into multiple of these seasons going, all right, look out for Paul DeYoung this year. I can't say look out for Paul DeYoung this year, though, because I've been burned one too many times. But I do think he can be, you know, 670 OPS the last two years. He doesn't have to be that guy. He could be the guy more toward the 740, 750 in terms of OPS. Just be average to maybe slightly above average offensively. And I think the team around you is going to be good enough. I mean, you're talking about Paul DeYoung, probably a number seven, number eight hitter uh, with, with some of the other guys the Cardinals have in the lineup. So I think it's going to be DeYoung. I think they're going to give him every opportunity this year uh, to be able to work through everything. I don't think he's going to be an MVP type, though, Daniel. I just think they're they're looking for league average. Yeah, yeah, league average by now would be well, it would be a step up from the last couple of years. And maybe the Mendoza year. line, the Mendoza line would help. Yeah, you know? that get, would be get back to that. Um, because yeah, I don't think if I remember correctly, he hasn't been over a hundred uh, OPS plus, except for you know, I mean, he's been right in that area for the last three or four years, so. You know, to get to a little bit above that would be maybe helpful. It's going to be very interesting to see how they juggle DeYoung and, and Sosa because of that idea. I, I think to some degree there was this, this talk about, you know, DeYoung needing the at-bats. You know, can they, you know, can he play two or three times a week um, and still get some sort of routine versus, you know, but if he's not, you know, how do you get so in that it's a, you know, that's that kind of juggling thing. That's always a, an interesting thing. And, and again, with a new manager, we don't know exactly how it's going to pad out, but um, I, I'm interested to see that kind of dynamic of how they split those guys up because it doesn't feel, and that's the next guy I want to really talk about. It doesn't feel like they're going to move one at like Sosa to second base and, and take over for Tommy Edmund. Edmund won a gold glove this year. You're right. Um, but overall, where you where's what's what's the jury on him for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like he probably shouldn't be the leadoff guy for this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, for as much as I, I mean, the the number of doubles he hit really is kind of remarkable. That's why the Tommy Two Bags thing kind of took off because he he hit a bunch of doubles and he stole thirty bases. And the Cardinal hadn't done that since Edgar Renteria as far as the the, the thirty stolen bases. So I, that's somebody that you love to have in your lineup. You love to have as a guy that can score runs for you, which he, he did score 91 runs last year. I, I think he's got to have more of an ability to get on base though. If you want to have him as the leadoff man, 308 on base is not going to really cut the mustard when it comes to being a leadoff hitter. Even when you, you know, put it next to the 40 plus doubles and the 30 plus steals, you've got to have more than that. And so I think, 
that they may give him the opportunity to do that again. We'll be interested to see what the new manager decides should happen with the leadoff spot. Like totally possible that you just say, oh, Dylan Carlson is going to be the prototypical guy to hit atop the lineup, and we're just going to put him at leadoff, and that's going to be the way it is. Or it could very much be more of a of a platoon-based system where you might have one guy bat leadoff when you face a lefty and another guy when you face a righty on the mound for the opposing team. So that could be the way that Ali Marmol decides to go with this. But offensively, yeah, I mean, the 695 OPS, and like you said, I agree that I don't think – Sosa is necessarily going to be a threat to take away playing time from Edmund, so to speak. Uh, interesting, though, that of the three guys we're talking about here, DeYoung, Edmund, and Sosa, Sosa was the only one to have an OPS above 700 last year <laughs> and an OPS plus at 106. You mentioned it with DeYoung. He hasn't been above 100 since his second year in the league when he was a 102 back in 2018. His rookie year, he was uh, 121. So yeah, it's been a, a decline for him offensively. Tommy Edmonds kind of been the same story. He burst onto the scene in 2019, had the 850 OPS, which I want to say was either the most on the Cardinals or like second to Goldschmidt or something like that. So he was, it, it, when he had that rookie season, he was fantastic. We haven't seen really the same offense from him. I don't think he's going to ever be a, a huge power guy and that's okay, but get your doubles and just find a way to maybe take some more walks to be able to boost that OBP any way you can. Because batting average, for as much as the, the talk about it, I don't think you have to have the highest batting average to be a leadoff man if your OBP is good. Mm-hmm. For Tommy Edmund, that could mean batting 260, 270. But just, I'm just talking 330, 335 instead of 308. And his game would be so much better because he was still pretty darn good last year when you look at wins above replacement and things like that because of what he can do with his legs, because of what he can do defensively. I, I just think that they want Tommy Edmund to be playing a lot of games. But that is the position where if you're talking about offense and if you think the Cardinals as a team need some more offense, that might be the spot that you look to go to be able to to put some of that offense. When you've got guys like Yepes, you've got guys like Nolan Gorman who can play that position potentially. And if they're expected to have an OPS above 800 and you're Tommy Edmund and you're great defensively, but you're around 690, that might be a decision the Cardinals have got to make down the road in the season, though, I think. I think it's more based on what's the team look like and where can we afford to be defense-oriented. Like A guy like Harrison Bader is going to play, and so the more he turns into not the defensive liability, who, or, or I should say the offensive liability, who bats eighth, but he's got to be in there because of his defense, and the more that he can continue to be a guy that can be a threat, can be consistent, and, and have an OPS 760, 770-plus, uh, that can kind of make up for some of the other deficiencies on the roster. But uh, the Cardinals do have the benefit of having guys at the corners like Arnado Goldschmidt, like O'Neill and Carlson, who are all very good defensively and also you expect to contribute offensively. So I do think it's a kind of a sum of its parts situation with where can you afford to go defense mainly and where do you have to think about offense. But for Tommy Evan, if he could just kind of bump up the OBP, I think he's enough to be able to play it second every day. Be glad you're getting that gold glove caliber defense and, and forget about the rest. That that could be his path. He's just kind of got to get there offensively. It, it feels to me that Tommy Edmond is the guy that's most able to move around. I mean, we've talked about him as the, the poor man's been sobrist a number of times. And, you know, it feels like he's a guy that could probably didn't have to necessarily have those every day at bats. Um, you know, if he plays five days a week in different positions, maybe that's how the team works best. I mean, and again, somebody's gonna have to take second from him to do that. And, and I don't know if that's Gorman or, or something else, but um, it feels to me like out of all the players and I could be completely wrong, he's a guy that seems to be less dependent on being out there every day. Even maybe it's because he is out there every day and I don't know anything better, but it seems to me like he's a guy that I would trust to come off the bench a little bit more than there may be somebody like a Paul DeYoung who's got that strikeout in his game. Yeah. And because he's more inclined to be able to take a better at bat without regular playing time, I could see that argument. I do like the idea of him just playing second every day because of how good he is on defense. But in the modern game, I think there is an element to they're going to look at the splits and they're going to look at the platoons and what could that look like and how can we maximize what our roster is? Because if you've got 10 guys that could play on an everyday basis and you know one of them is Edmund, but it, it works best, the puzzle is best put together with him in a one spot 
on this day and another spot on another day, especially with the DH in there, I think could contribute to that, then maybe that is the way they go. Because again, if the offense isn't there from one through nine, you're going to have to make some changes and some sacrifices on the defensive side. And I'm not assuming that Nolan Gorman is going to be a terrible second baseman, but I feel like if they're ever putting him at second, it's because they need the offense and they, they want to get his bat in the lineup somehow. And, and so there are going to be opportunities to do that. If the DH comes, there are going to be opportunities to do it. If the DH isn't there, uh, it's just a matter of how that puzzle fits together on a daily basis. It could be that Edmund moves around. I, I honestly, as far as expectation, don't know. Um, I think it's going to kind of depend on the makeup of the team and how they're hitting and how they're performing as the season goes along, because like you could envision a scenario where you want to get like Sosa and Edmund in the same lineup, but mm-hmm. you've got a DH to contend with. And so it's going to be some moving parts for Ali Marmal to be sure. Uh, I think you'll be up to the task and the more guys that are hitting, by the way, the easier that gets. Like <laughs> if everybody's hitting, it's like, Oh, okay. It's not like a do or die scenario. Like if we don't put X, Y, or Z in the lineup from our bench today, we're not going to score any runs. If it's more of a a luxury situation, that's the ideal way for this to go down. But it's going to be interesting for sure to see how it looks with all the moving parts that could be in different areas, as you mentioned, like a Tommy Edmund. Yeah. Yeah. If everybody's hitting, you just randomly close your eyes and start pointing. And that's, that's always fun too. So, um, let's switch a little bit before we wrap up tonight Though we've talked a lot about the offensive side of things. How comfortable are you with the Cardinals rotation and the depth that's there um, in case somebody falters? All right. So let's talk about that. You've got Adam Wainwright, Jack Flaherty. Feel pretty good about both those guys. Is it always possible for either of them to suffer a season ending injury? Sure. And that's why you got to have depth because you're going to lose one or two guys in spring training, probably more than that this year, just because of the shortened nature of it. So you got to be kind of prepared for that, but just talking about their performance and what I expect, I expect both of those guys uh, to be pretty good. And then you've got Miles Michaelis. If he's healthy, I feel like you can expect it to be pretty good. Uh, Dakota Hudson, I feel like is kind of in that same boat. Only his health is not as much of a question to me at this point because you saw him come back at the end of last year after Tommy John, presumably with a full off season of work, he should be good to go. I almost would put him as the number three in terms of just thinking of what I expect in terms of effectiveness. Maybe Hudson would be my number three uh, above Michaelis. And then you got Steven Matz, who I only put him kind of there at the end just based on not having seen him in St. Louis. He's had some years where it's not been great and he's had injuries in his past, but more recently he's looked pretty good. And so I feel like getting Steven Matz, like that's a bonafide number three. If I'm thinking about a competitive rotation in my head, I think that he's a three. Michaelis is a three and Dakota Hudson could be a three, maybe even a two as well. I know there are a lot in the analytics community who look at Hudson and say, oh my gosh, there's no way he's ever going to be able to continue what he's done as far as ERA because you look at his FIP or whatever and it's just it just doesn't add up. I, I maintain, and I said this last year, I've said it every offseason, like I think Hudson can probably just continue what he's done because the guy knows how to pitch, and he knows how to pitch to his strengths, and I feel like his strengths, he knows, are to get ground balls. And so he's continued to do that. He's going to continue to do that at a rate that's higher than the league average is my expectation. So I think Dakota Hudson's going to – like he's still a young guy. Like he's still getting better. I feel like Dakota Hudson's definitely somebody that the Cardinals can feel good about just from a performance standpoint in their rotation. So. All right, the five that we mentioned, I like. Who'd we leave out? They're talking about Alex Reyes. Is he going to be in that mixture? What about Jordan Hicks? Um, like Jake Woodford is another guy who could perhaps be in that mixture as as depth from a starting perspective. Honestly, I think their starting rotation depth is only in a good spot if they have above average health through the early part of the season, like better than I expect. Because again, of the eight guys we just listed and, and shout it out, Daniel, if I'm missing somebody who no, you got Oviedo in that mix Oviedo too. as well is definitely someone that's got to be considered because I think of the guys who aren't in the top five, he's got some upside right up there with the rest of those Alex Reyes types. And with Reyes and Hicks, like it feels kind of like a long shot. It feels kind of like a novelty to think that these guys could, could jump into the rotation after some of the injuries they've both had and, and be part of that mixture. And again, it just kind of feels like something that works itself out every spring because when you look at those two, you go, well, you're not going to put them in a, a compromising position health-wise, and so you're not going to leave them in this quote-unquote starters competition when really there's no competition. Like there's five names, and those right. are your starters, 
until one of them gets hurt, which is going to happen. So that's kind of why I feel like the Cardinals always go into it with this mindset of here are our other guys that are in the quote-unquote competition for starters innings in spring because you've got to have guys that are built up not only for the major league depth, but you got to have a rotation at Memphis too. That's not going to be Reyes. That's not going to be Jordan Hicks. Those guys are going to be in your big league bullpen or, or, or in your rotation if something crazy happens. Uh, but, you know, for – uh, the other guys and what does it look like for Woodford now that he is, you know, moving along in his major league career? Is he going to be a bullpen guy? Does he really fit out there? Uh, similar for Oviedo, who they could they could have him in AAA if they wanted him as part of that rotation. I don't. I think he almost works better as a starter than a reliever long term. And I always like to see that from guys. I, I like that they're talking about Reyes and Hicks potentially being starters because I like to have the teams say. Prove to me you can't be a starter and I'll make you a reliever, not the other way around. Don't fill a need as reliever because we think that's what we need from you. If your arm and your talents and your repertoire can dictate you for a bigger role, I'd rather you be in a bigger role because that can help the team. Starters are always going to be more valuable than even the most valuable reliever. If you're great as a starter, that's where you need to be. So I think their depth is intriguing. But if you look at some of the guys like Reyes Hicks on the outside looking in of that starting five, when an injury happens, do you really trust that guy to be able to take on a starter's workload? And, and, and if so, that's great. But if not, do they really belong as your as your competition for a starting spot? It's fine in February. It's fine in early March. But when you get to March 29th or whatever it is, if that's your, your sixth man up, that could be a little bit scary. And so I don't know what kind of move they make. Do they go get a veteran? Uh, perhaps. I think they've got some really good talent. But as always, it's going to re- rely on the health of that group. In this year in particular, without any other additions, I think that's a little skeptical and a little sketchy because the guys that are supposedly your next men up have been known in the past to be injured and, and not be able to get through those kinds of workloads. I think their talent is out of this world. Uh, but always you want to have more than more starters than you think you need because inevitably you're going to need them when, when the time comes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are in a situation where they can't go get the Max Scherzers or whatever, but if they can get a guy that can start or long, long relief, then that's definitely what they seem to need because you're right. There's a lot of, a lot of question marks on depth. Everything goes right. Hey, great. Wonderful. But like you say, baseball, typically not everything goes right. And to me, it kind of has to be one of those guys that's like a reclamation project. Like, again, it's going to be another name where when Cardinals fans see you sign this guy to a minor league deal with a spring training invite, they should be pissed off. They should be like, oh, why did we get why did we get that guy? What? It, it should make no sense to the Facebook Cardinal fans because that way, if you do have a need in spring training and this guy's performing well, you could maybe slot him in your rotation and give him a 40-man spot. But if not, is it a guy that, like, for instance, last year, was John Lester ever going to pitch out of the bullpen if he didn't crack your starting five? No, that was going to be the end of his time with the Cardinals. He just happened to pitch well enough to be able to keep his job and and, and not be better than the other guys or, or guys got injured or whatever. And so it ended up working out without that having to become a situation. I don't think they can spend money on a guy and say, well, we're going to give you five or $6 million uh, major league contract, but you may be our sixth starter. And so we put you in the bullpen until we need you. Like the Cardinals haven't operated that way in the past. And so it could be kind of tricky to see him do it this time as well. You never know, but unless an injury happens early in spring training where they say, oh, we know we need this depth. Uh, it may be kind of a tricky situation to, to fill if you don't know exactly what the role for that guy is going to be if everything happens to work out with your starting five. Yeah. So it's it, like you said, it's it's the, the it's the way LeBlanc's of the world that they're looking for. You know, the guys that are yeah. minor league, you know, or major league minimum that can go start relief, whatever, and, you know, give you a and be a fifth starter. I mean, that, you don't you don't necessarily need a guy that's going to be the top of your rotation. They're good to so, have, and and he was good for them last year. Like mm-hmm. as as unsexy as that is, Wade LeBlanc gave the Cardinals good innings last year uh, before he went down with his injury. So that's that's not a, a bad bucket to be shopping in if they decide they need a little bit more depth. Yeah, and I think they've proven that they know what they're looking for there again with with Hap, with Lester, with LeBlanc, with. McFarlane with Garcia with all those guys from last year being like you said those guys like what are they doing they proved that they knew what they were doing so if they sign a guy like that 
you know, one, it's low risk, but two, they seem to have, you know, at least through their analytics or whatever the case may be, found guys that can work at Bush Stadium or work with the defense that's behind them. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that when you look at the record of John Mozeliak and people say, oh my gosh, some of these free agent signings haven't worked out when they've spent money on guys like uh, Greg Holland. I, I still remember my <laughs> my tweet about that. With some, I don't remember the amount. What are they paying? $14 million, But I said, like have you ever seen $14 million shoved into a blender? Like That's what it feels like. <laughs> uh, that's what it, you turn it on, and that's what the Cardinals did with that. And so it feels like that's what they do sometimes when it comes to spending on that relief pitching contract, because any reliever you sign, that's not like, you know, a Josh Hader, like that ultra elite Craig Kimbrell. And even those guys sometimes will have bad years. You're not necessarily guaranteed anything. And so the Cardinals have always seemed to be hesitant to sign super big contracts, but then they'll throw money to relievers, $10 million a pop. Like it's like, it's nothing. And every time it doesn't really pan out. But what I will say for John Mozeliak, and, and obviously he's been able to make some of the big trades that got guys like Goldsmith and Arenado here, uh, and you know that, that's that's a big part of of being able to build a competitive team. But the under the radar deals and what they've done in foreign markets as well—that's how they got Michaelis. Like Kwon Yun Kim was was a good pickup for the price, even though they didn't elect to bring him back. It was risk-free. And so what John Mozeliak has been able to do in the risk-free markets has been kind of astounding with some of the talent that he's been able to bring in uh, from a pitching perspective and time and time again, be able to find it. So yeah, I think for Cardinals fans that, you know, I know that Mo often is the, uh, the, the recipient of some criticism. It's pretty clear at this point to me that they're able to, to work those kinds of markets uh, with a, with a really good efficiency. And they've been able to do so over the course of time. Last thing before we before we wrap this up, uh, Hall of Fame voting came out this week. David Ortiz makes it in. Um, Scott Rowland at what sixty two, sixty three percent. He's getting um, there. He's getting there. Do you think he gets in next year? Nah, it's gonna be so close next year. I I've been saying within the next two years he's definitely in. Two more votes, I think he's in next year. Might get up to you know sixty nine, seventy percent. Maybe he gets the big jump that he needed. I think he jumped about eleven percent this year. So mm-hmm. if he were to replicate that, which Mathematically, it would be more difficult to continue making those kinds of leaps as you get more of the voting body already on your side. Uh, I think he's got to get in within the next two years. Next year will be very interesting to see. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be fun. So he gets in number retirement statue, anything like that for the Cardinals? Do you think that's I, a great I, I question? Think, I, I mean, given obviously beloved in St. Louis, obviously had great years here, but you know, he didn't necessarily spend a, a huge chunk of it. Started in Philadelphia, yeah. played elsewhere afterwards, left on not the greatest of terms. Right. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I think probably not. And, and the reason I say that is because when you think about number retirements, Cardinals are going to be running out of numbers here if they it's continue. If they continue and to, wall too in wall space, exactly. Uh, if they continue to retire numbers at the rate that they have, like they've got such a storied history, and so I, I'm not, I'm not ever going to be the guy to say, oh, that guy doesn't deserve his number retired. But like, you know, the numbers being worn for one, and for another thing, mm-hmm. you, you just eventually kind of run out of the cool numbers and. And that's, I think the Cardinals, like, and you think about it too, like, is anyone ever going to wear number five again? No, like nobody ever should. And so they'll kind of cross that bridge when they come to it. What about number four? Heck no, it's not ever going to be worn by anybody else. I promise you. And so it's like, you start to think about it. It's like, ah, we, you know, like we, we, they're, they're beloved Cardinals and, and even the ones that, that get into the hall of fame sometimes. Like another one that's interesting is 50, 50 should never be worn again either. And so you've got. I mean, it's just so rare to have so many like legends on that level that the Cardinals have and have had within the last couple decades. Where it's like if you if you just continue to 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 do the ones that weren't even here for their whole career, you might kind of run out of numbers <laughs> at some point. I, that doesn't diminish Scott Rowland. I think Scott Rowland is awesome. He I'd vote for him if I had a vote at this point in time. I think he's deserving of being a Hall of Famer. I think it's more a conversation about can the Cardinals afford to continue retiring numbers? Like the, 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 the class of 2027 prospect, that guy's going to be wearing like one Oh nine and a half when he gets to the big leagues. I'm telling you at this rate. Well, what it's, it's what the Yankees have retired. 
like all their single digits and like yeah forget about a single digit number with them yeah yeah like dylan carlson's got three right like that tells you what kind of prospect dylan carlson was to say holy smokes i've got a single digit number on on the st louis cardinals like it's it's not always easy to come by and so you know it's it's just kind of you just kind of look at it and think yeah they keep retiring numbers at this rate like 27 is a pretty slick number i think that's that you got to keep that one in the rotation unfortunately Probably so. I guess what three and eight are the only single digits the Cardinals have left, assuming you know Yachty gets retired, which is and and Pujols's, which are are so strong assumptions. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough to get, but you know, seventy is still out there, and people should be wanting. I know, 70. I know you so. really, I know you really want <laughs> want that to be the thing. I know it's the 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 patron uh, the patron pitcher had it for a while. Title That's Lions. True. That was a tough day for you, I know, when he departed. Although you missed one. I know that number seven is still in play, but again, that's also being worn, so it's kind of kind of tricky. I, for a minute, I was like, I know somebody's number seven. I had to Google it. I think it's Kisner, but it was. Uh, I knew it because it was J.D. Drew. I knew he was number seven. That was my guy when I was a kid, and so I was like, I'm pretty sure they've got one more single digit, but yeah. Um, 70s good yeah. too, though. I, your yeah, day's coming. Like maybe you should, maybe here's what you got to do. You got to stump for the role in Jersey retirement. You got to be like Tyler O'Neill. It doesn't matter. Like we got to get rid of this because the, the fewer numbers there are, the, the more opportunity there is for somebody to catch on as a 70 and stay there for their full career. Yeah, it, it's getting. I mean, it's getting used it more. I mean, uh, before let's see, before Lions, I think it getting used for like a, a handful of at bats. Lions used it, and then what? Brandon Waddell used it this year. So it's always it's getting its chance, right? It's just got to be. Yeah. You got to have it stick to one of those guys who is going to be around for a while, and also doesn't have his eyes on maybe moving to a lower number because that's kind of what seems to happen. Is a guy yeah. might have it, but then they go, "Oh, what? What just opened up? Oh, I'll take it." And so then you kind of lose him with that one. You know how close I was to immortality, though. Uh, a couple of years ago, I found out, saw a, a video on Fox, I think at the time Fox Sports was West. In his first spring training, Adam Wainwright wore seventy. Yeah, man, if he had stuck with that, what you know, if? He, huh? He'd have been in the Hall of Fame by then. You know, I mean, it's not <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, that would that would have been something. All right, Brendan, I've kept you too long enough. Uh, I appreciate you joining me tonight and um, hope that the, the lockout gets done and you can, you know, start writing some stuff and, you know, hopefully your Wordle streak continues. My Wordle streak, may it never die. I appreciate you, Daniel. It's been a lot of fun catching up with you, man. Good talk to you. Uh, Alan should be back with us next week. Um, we've got uh, Katie Wu is supposed to join us next week too. So um, until then, for Brendan, that's Daniel. Good night. In the air to right center. Back at the wall. It is off the base of the wall. The Cardinals are going to take the lead. Carpenter has emptied the bases and with the three run double.